the episode we've all been waiting for three body problem finally <laughs> it's here it's happening we've been teasing it for like a month which is probably appropriate mm-hmm. because it it is a long series but i i breezed past it like i mean it was just like so easy to read and so much fun it felt like being a kid and reading harry potter because i started harry potter when i think the fourth one was out so those first four i could literally put one down and pick the next one up immediately and i don't think i've felt that since that time and this was amazing i just each one i finished i was like all right i'm gonna take a piss and then start the next one (laughs) (laughs) It is like such a nice way to enjoy these kinds of stories. I feel that way with TV shows too. If there's a really good TV show, you almost want to wait until a few seasons are out so that you can really like just enjoy it all at once. You can binge it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it falls off too. I, I feel like The Last of Us, everybody was going crazy about that at the start of the season. And then by the end, people seemed kind of over it. I don't know. I didn't watch it, but I've heard that reaction. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Within um, one season, people fell off. Within one season, yeah. People were wow. just insanely pumped about the first four episodes. And then by the end, it seemed like nobody was talking about it anymore. Yeah. When I saw you like a few weeks back, everyone was talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> that happened very quickly. I know, right? <laughs> nobody nobody has attention spans anymore. <laughs> but I will say you like... break binging... every TV show into a TikTok series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think with binging, like for a book like this, or I guess even a TV show, the thing that's cool is you pretty much get so absorbed into that world. I don't know. I feel like when I was reading this, I was just, I was like in that universe and everything yeah. I would like do or talk to anyone about, I would like be doing through the lens of three body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Should we give our little spoiler alert? So if you've not read three body problem, but you think you will, you will read it. Or if, even if you have a slight chance that you're going to read it, you probably shouldn't listen to this episode yet. You should go read the books, come back, and then listen. So, you know, we don't want to ruin the experience for you because we're definitely going to talk about some spoilers here in this book. It, it It's really good. And the thing I love about it when I'm pitching it to people is I can basically say nothing about the book to them because there is some major revelation or plot twist reliably every 30 to 70 pages <laughs> for 1500 pages across three books so all i can say is just the opening premise i'm like some physicists are committing suicide and you got to find out why (laughs) that's it (laughs) yeah it's like there's a twist coming every you're right like 30 to 70 pages maybe and then there's also like in between those pages just really good exposition and like dialogue and just it they do a great job of pacing like it doesn't feel like it gets boring at any point yeah Uh, i think each book has one stretch of maybe 20 pages of dialogue that's textbook style like classic sci-fi you know not very interesting but they blend it in reasonably well so you're you're usually like 18 pages in to the 20 page explainer when you're like, ah, oh, they got me. And then you're like, well, I guess I'll just, I guess I'll just finish up this explanation of whatever and, and move on. There was one section that was slow for me, which I guess this is a spoiler. So, you know, first, first, like if, if you're still listening and you want to read it, just drop off right now. Yeah. The one part that got a little slow for me, the only time I think in the entire series, even those 20 page like sci-fi like explanations were kind of fun. The one thing that did get slow was when they were going through the three stories 
oh, that were the, written. The fairy tales. The fairy tales. Oh, like interesting. They were like no, they were interesting, but like I was yeah. I ended up like starting to I noticed I was starting to skim like part of them. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, like what happens here? What happens here? Like, all right, fine. Like I get it. I get it. It was just it wasn't it was obviously a different theme than the rest of the book, but they were crucial to the rest of the story. <laughs> so I did notice at one point I was like like later on in the book. I was like, oh, I didn't catch that in the fairy tale <laughs> because I skimmed it. Did you guys see that meme I sent you about the... Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> the writing of these fairy tales We should wonderful. put that in the show notes. Yeah. We should put that, yeah. yeah. yeah, basically the, yeah that, was, that was actually a really nice... Because I feel like the story within the story is often kind of... Uh, Contrived isn't quite the right word, but it's a it's a thing that a lot of sci-fi fantasy, even non those genre like writers do. And there's always a little bit of a like, oh, okay, here we go, right? Like <laughs> the, we the, the best way to explain something was for the character to like find a book that explains it instead of <laughs> like, working it into the action somehow, right? Like there, there's often a sense of okay, like the author couldn't find any other way to explain this, so we're like just reading a book that explains it. I I actually felt like this is one of the better ways of doing that, right? Because true. it did yeah. kind of make sense as a way to like sneak information back to Earth. Although I also couldn't help but feel like, are they really not going to figure out that this is what you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> like, these are pretty blatant. <laughs> well, I guess they the one thing that was true from the beginning of the book is they always seem to underestimate humans' capability for deception. Because they yeah. didn't have the same. Oh yeah, because they couldn't lie, right? Yeah, I mean, they eventually figured it out that like, oh, like you can, you know, this is what humans are doing. But they, I think they constantly, uh, the Trisolarians that constantly, you know, underestimated how, like, I guess the the capability of humans to like hide information and like lie yeah. essentially. So maybe they just I, I I didn't thought that too, Nat. And then I, the way I explained it to myself was just, oh, they probably didn't realize it because they could, like couldn't conceive that this would even be possible. Yeah, that's a good point. I'll say one thing. One thing that I like about these kinds of sci-fi books and Project Hail Mary did this really well too, mm. is introducing an alien species that has some quirk that's very different from humans, but that even if it's not fully believable makes you think about stuff we take for granted as being defining characteristics of a civilization. So the, the not being able to deceive each other was a a big one. The other one that I thought was really interesting was this idea of exponential versus linear cultures. Hmm. And it wasn't like a huge, I mean, it, it was kind of an important plot point going into the second book, but I, that one I found a little harder to buy. Did that one make sense to you? Because basically they were saying that the Trisolarians didn't have exponential growth in their knowledge and capabilities, I guess because of the constant resetting of society from you know getting into the chaotic eras. And so because they only progressed linearly, human tech was able to catch up to them and surpass them by the time their ships made it to earth. Did that make sense to you guys? I didn't even catch that because they later invented the curvature propulsion and all that and really got far ahead and they had the droplets like, yeah, I wonder, I, I didn't even notice that, that, uh, that exchange. I don't, well, that, that was, doesn't even feel true in the context of the story. 
That that was how they explained that humans developed faster travel than them, because the, hmm. because when the, the Trismerians left for Earth, yeah, humans couldn't get up to whatever they were at, like ten percent light speed. And then by I the see. time they got there, we could. Well, I thought Whereas that was one of the reasons they were so scared of humans in the first place was the exponential nature. I, of, I think you're right of human technological progress. Yeah, and that was but why they we underestimated the, them on other things because they they already had the droplets. I think until. right, they didn't like they already yeah. figured that out, and we just we assumed that if you could move faster than them, then you could defeat them. But they had all this other engineering tech we didn't understand. Yeah, yeah, and also they the Trisolarians, the I guess they were more linear, but they were able to keep their knowledge, like keep their I guess science progressing because the dehydration stuff. They yeah, could, like dehydrate themselves. During the chaotic eras, so then rehydrate. So I guess instead idea. of like preserving knowledge, because humans preserve knowledge, I guess using technology largely, whether that technology is like stories or computers, it's kind of the same. It's like a knowledge preservation technology. But I guess if instead of dying, you just dehydrated yourself and could rehydrate yourself when times were better, it's technically the same individuals probably then. Did they ever explain the origin of dehydration? No, I don't think I think so. it was just that it was an evolved yeah. adaptation to okay. the environment they lived in. That was the vibe that I got from the video game. Got was, it. That, that was, was one that confused me. Evolved. Because that would be a prerequisite for surviving chaotic eras. And I was like, okay, so you have to evolve pretty fast in a stable era to get to that. And then you can start surviving chaotic eras. Yeah, there wouldn't be like a minor adaptation. That's a good point, yeah. right? Yeah. It would be like humans evolving to survive, you know, like a nuclear bomb or something, right? Like you can't, yeah. you can't get partially nuked, really. Yeah. Right? And then if you do get nuked, then you're back to zero, all of life resets. And you have to hope this time around. By the yeah, because it it's not just up. a hardiness to it, right? It's not just a yeah. toughness where like oh, some people survived the chaotic errors and some people didn't, or, you know, some bacteria survived and some didn't. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is an interesting thing to imagine how that could evolve. Yeah. Before we get too far from the fairy tale, the one thing that stood out to me, which I I think makes like everyone classifies these as sci-fi and they are, but they really jump through genres. Like the first book is a bit of like a mystery thriller. Like you don't really yeah. know what's happening for like 2-300 pages. Yeah. The second book felt more like classic adventure. It was like mostly in real time and you're following just a character. And the third book was i don't even know it was like several genres yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean the uh, first book there's not really much sci-fi in it no it's 60s era tech for the most yeah. part and yeah it's, it's only really like when they're building the sofon yeah 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 i think he did a really good job with all and then when you get to the job. fairy tales you're like all right like Gives himself the pat on the back. Yeah, now we have fantasy <laughs> too. Yeah, Why not? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, okay, what's missing? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I also thought these books did a really good job of being like also a mirror through which to view uh, humanity. Because it's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's very easy, I think, to be um, like, what's the human-centric thing? Not like... He- is heliocentric the thing where it's like the world the heliocentric is the sun, the sun. is the yeah. center of the earth what's like the what was the thing before that where like the earth was the center whatever that is um, it's very easy for yeah. for you to view like the world through that lens even accidentally even though you like instinctively know that that's not true but your 
perspective on humans is just like, oh, this is just how things are. But when you see it through another, like, oh, this is how, like, the the context in the book is that there's all these other civilizations out there, and we'll we'll talk about the Fermi paradox and all that stuff. But it's just so interesting when you view like the Trisolarians viewing humans through their own perspective, and it's like, oh yeah, humans are actually very capable of information deception. Like just going into that. To, to using that example it's like we just think of that as like that's just how things are like you can't trust what people say only or like to look at actions not words like we just view that as normal but that might yeah. not actually be normal when you think about other intelligent species that could be out there or a computer even if you think about like ai and if you you know got to like an, an actual general ai would that ai be because it's kind of derived from human intelligence like maybe it's uh, it would have information deception or maybe it wouldn't like, I don't know. It's like, that doesn't, that's not like a, that's not something that is part of being an intelligent species necessarily. It's just a quirk of humans kind of. Yeah. You even think I almost have the mental image of like when a dog does something wrong and it's like all <laughs> over its face and it, like, yeah. you can't tell you what it's doing. What it's doing. <laughs> 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 kind <of> know. <laughs> the book made me so nostalgic for the earth. Like, mm. especially in the second and third books where it was yeah. really hopeless, I was like, man, like, I love it here. Like, <laughs> I, I had never felt that so strongly as I did while reading these books. Because uh, you really, he does a very good job of like, you feel completely hopeless. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's just like, how, how are we ever going to get out of this thing? Like, it doesn't seem yeah. possible. And like the end where, well, now if you're still listening, now is really the time to go. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> when when the solar system gets flattened through the uh, dimensional like collapse, I forget what they called it, the something plane. That was like, I was just amazed at how sad I was. I didn't yeah. expect to like feel so much in a sci-fi novel. It uh, it's not a happy book. Like it it doesn't have a good ending. It's a very sad ending. Yeah, like everybody dies. <laughs> uh, not everybody. Not everybody. I mean, not everybody, not everybody, right? But well, no, they they do die at the end. They sacrifice themselves to let the universe rebuild itself. Oh, yeah, their death yeah. becomes inevitable. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. 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 Everybody dies. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's there's there is no happy ending. I mean, it, it's a little morbid in that sense, right? It's true. It still feels satisfying, though. Yeah. Right? It actually like, would have not felt satisfying if it ended a different way. Like, if it had, like, a little yeah, bit Yeah, they of, just like, lived a- happily ever after on the planet with, like, the four <laughs> of them or the yeah. three of them and Sofon, right? Yeah. Like. <laughs> the, the way he switched between the scale of the villain in the third book, where you start with it's Trisolaris, and then it's everyone in the Dark Forest, yeah. and then it's everyone against the universe itself... Like the scale by the end of the book, you're like, man, we all got to team up. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> in the dark forest. <laughs> the he, other, has, he just did a really good job. Yeah. The other that, thing related to the sense, sentimental part was uh, when the whole section about preserving, like, how would you make a monument to humanity? And it was so interesting because, like, so I was like, when I was in Arizona this week, I went to one of the places we drove through was uh, Casa Grande, ru- the Casa Grande ruins, which are like, 2000 ish years old it's like this like multi-story structure in the desert that they think was for astronomical reasons because like there's still holes in that building which are like 
like for example, the moon is in a certain position every like 18.6 years or something. And it literally like is it's like perfectly viewable through this one hole on like the third story of this, you know, mud building that was built like 2000 years ago. It's it's wild. Like, but anyway, the thing that's crazy is a lot of these like stone engravings are perfectly preserved. Like you can still see them and it's like extremely clear and it's 2000 years and it's like had no trouble surviving. Whereas, you know, paper 2000 years later is basically useless. I think in the book, they're talking about hard drives are even basically useless on, on even a thousand year time scale. Uh, yeah. And so the question in the book was just if you had to make a monument to humanity that could survive, you know, a hundred million years, they basically landed on your best bet is carving in stone. Like we went in full circle from starting with carving in stone all the way back to carving in stone. Like so poetic, poetically totally. tragic, yeah. but poetic. Yeah. The, I love the hard drive thing, you end up with this whole interface problem too. It's like, yes. even if it could last a million years, like, well, you got to leave a computer and a charger and like, yep. you know, the voltage has to be right. <laughs> it's like a whole, <laughs> whole bunch of stuff. Yep. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I do love when sci-fi books explain something like that, where once you hear it, it's, it's just like so obvious, right? It's like, oh, you know, I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah, like that is so obviously true. There, there's not even a stretch to argue for it, right? It's just kind of like uh, something that would become just a necessary truth in that world, right? Like, oh, you would have to kind of revert to using Stone Age tech to like convey these like super, super long-term messages. The There was another version of this in the Expanse series, it's kind of a throwaway line, but it actually made me rethink some of the conflict in the three body problem where basically in the book, they point out that once you have a spacefaring civilization, being on a planet is incredibly dangerous hmm. because it's so trivial to destroy all life on a planet from space. You don't need like a Death Star laser or anything like that. You just throw a big enough asteroid at it and it's done or just like crash a ship into it right and the the speed and force of the impact from space would just destroy everything like on the planet and so there is this little bit of like okay so they probably could have just like crashed a droplet into the earth from space like they didn't have to go through some of this other stuff right if they if it had enough mass mm. at least right yeah because the droplet was the very droplets in. yeah like you wouldn't have to go like find and kill the wall facer, right? You just yeah. blow up the planet. Well, I guess they were never trying to destroy the planet. See, that yeah, was like the were, thing for it. For the dark force strike. I, yeah. Yeah. For a dark force strike, you could just go straight through. I thought they the were tri- at one point. Oh, no, no, no. They wanted to live there. They wanted to live on Earth. Oh, they that's just right. Wanted they wanted to get to rid of humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just want to get rid yeah. of humans. Okay, that's right. Yeah, so they couldn't like... I think that presented its own problem that... Uh, to your point, yeah, for a dark forest strike, you just... You're just trying to destroy the place. Yeah, you could the Trisolarians were doing something a little different. That's right. Okay, I forgot about that part. <laughs> Speaking of like scaling everything up, like there's that one very short chapter in the middle of Death's End uh, where they are just showing some command center for some unnamed species that oh, are yes. destroying planets <laughs> yeah. casually. It was the cleanser like, and the singer uh, chapter. Yeah, it was a great wild. chapter. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, like, we've you know, really come a long way. <laughs> you know, when I first started reading that chapter, I wasn't sure if that was like the future of humans. 
like was that just mm. like a deep you know like several thousands of years in the future are humans the ones doing dark forest strikes essentially against other civilizations like have we like I, I wasn't sure if that was the direction he was going was like we've come so far along that like now we just don't trust anything and we're just destroying every civilization we come across because <laughs> you did have to naturally humanize them right right, right. Yeah. but it but they're supposed to be what on like fourth fifth sixth dimension or something looking down and sending out these strikes i think something like that yeah yeah what well, i might have missed this like uh, maybe maybe i did but did they did he ever actually really describe like what the tricellarians were like no okay because i was really the dehydrating yeah i know it's dehydrating insect like and and then they're they're missing something that would be obvious to us like eyes right oh there was something like that yeah 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 like they're I, I, were they blind and they just use echolocation? There was something like that. Yeah, but I'm curious how they're going to do it in the show. You know, how are they? Oh, gonna yeah. Are they just going to be an unseen? They might just be unseen. You may yeah. never see them, right? Like, because you don't, there's, there's never a direct interaction with one, right? Yeah, so fun. It's off screen. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, you wouldn't need to make them look like anything. I'm simultaneously excited and nervous for the show. There's some stuff that I just have no idea how they're going to do in a show. Yeah. Like, like the dimensions. Yeah. How do you do that fourth dimensional walking thing in order to like get inside the droplet? Yeah. They'll figure it out. I mean, it's going to be awesome. I'm definitely going to watch it. Is it just going to be, is it going to be three seasons or did they, did they know yet? 24 episodes. Wow. Man, I'm excited for 24, this. 24 hour long episodes. That is wild. But that's for the whole show. For the whole series, yeah. 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 So I'm guessing, yeah, I don't know. It could be like eight, eight and eight or something. I'm really glad they didn't get too much into the appearance of the uh, Trisolarans. It's just one of those things that it never lives up to expectations what the aliens look like. So No, I actually thought that was really clever that he didn't get into that because I think that would be so tempting for an author to like describe what these things were like and he could have gone there, but it it would have taken away from it. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And even when they had like their peace era, they were like that they're like, oh, we didn't really get to learn anything about trisolar and culture. And like, they just absorbed our culture and started making our movies. But we have no clue what they were up to. And I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it was also like, I think this is a good segue for how humanity reacted to this news. Because like, this is the thing that's so interesting about it is like, if you found out today that 400 years from now, like Earth would be destroyed by these distant aliens or maybe not earth would be destroyed but humanity would be destroyed by these distant like all-powerful you know aliens and they can block all technological progress like see 400 years is like this is the problem it's like far enough in the future that most people will be like yeah it doesn't really matter like i'm just gonna keep doing what i'm doing problem (laughs) yeah because think about what was going on 400 years before now like in 1623 like I mean, we were not even close to the U.S. being formed. 
at at that point. Like we were still like a hundred and fifty years away from the yeah, U.S. Yeah. being formed. <laughs> there was yeah. a sense of, you know, oh, we'll just like figure it out, and they try a bunch of stuff. The main characters hibernate. They come back. Yeah, and people did indeed figure it out. Like it wasn't actually anything we saw. For every major leap that advanced the plot on humanity's side was not seen from the perspective of the uh, like omniscient uh, the reader. Me- yeah. I did think like, so the idea of the two ideas that were really, I mean, there were, there were multiple, but like two that were really interesting were the uh, hibernation one. So basically like if you have somebody who is, you know, you want as part of the future battle, like get them to hibernate now. Or if you want them, you know, somebody who, whose skills would be best taken advantage of when technology is like a little bit further along, like get them to hibernate now. Like that's, it's actually really, it's, it's kind of a form of time travel if you think about it. Yeah. Not, you can't travel in the past, but you could travel into the future essentially because with hibernation and I could see like that hibernation feels like it's within the realm of possibility. Like I'm not saying, you know, we're close to it, but it feels like within the, like I think we're understanding aging a lot better, and I think you know you could probably there's definitely correlation with like cellular activity and how fast your body ages. So in theory, if you could slow that down without killing you, you could you know theoretically hibernate. I don't know. I thought that was like super cool. I'm like, wow, if somebody figures this out, it kind of is a form of time travel into the future. Don't we already do that at a very very small scale? If like you need to transport someone. I'll I'll do a quick Google, but you can like basically bring them down to very cold just for a few hours before you can operate. I think you're right. There's some version of that just to like slow. It's like if somebody's near death, right? You can sort of slow the progression by getting them very cold and keeping them on like a special yeah. form of life support. Yeah. That's what I remember reading. Yeah. I've heard I, something about that. Yeah. I don't know if that's done on like a full body scale, but it's definitely done for organ transplants. So like okay. when somebody mm-hmm. dies, that's like, there's, um, I think it was called Transmedics. There's like a company that I bought some stock in last year that, or two years ago, that was like, and I, I still, so just like. Just, Chilling your bags on the podcast? No, no, just, yeah. just, <laughs> I own the stock. So it's not like. Yeah, what's the stock ticker, Neil? Uh, <laughs> I think it's TMDX actually. Is there a Discord? It's Transmedics. Is there a Discord? Uh, no, but th- this is their whole invention when was moon. like, their whole invention was instead of like, you know, uh, I think right now it's like very sadly like unscalable and very low distance that an organ can be taken. If you need like, you know, let's say somebody dies and like they have a perfectly good kidney. There's people on the kidney transplant list that need one right now. It's like they kind of have like a box, I think that, you know, it goes into with like dry ice and stuff, but it's like you need to move it and get it into the new, you know, to, to the new body like very quickly. So Transmedics has, I think, for heart transplants. And then there was one other, I want to say kidney was the other one that they were working on. But it's essentially like a box that keeps the organ alive. So it has like some kind of like liquid that goes through the organ Mm. as if it's like kind of like extends its life from not being in a body, which is pretty cool. I think the heart one, they were still waiting on FDA approval, but the kidney one or they they had approval for one that was what how I had originally heard about them. But the idea was that instead of having like 24 hour essentially like time to get it into a body, it becomes like, you know, could become days, which means you could transport it across the country, which, you know, makes like could potentially save a lot of people. Yeah. And then I think like the other thing is like that's a small scale version of hibernation. You know, if you think about it, it's probably the same 
idea because you're just not, yeah. you're not allowing the tissue to die. I wonder yeah. at that point, is it like, is there a th- limit on this form of transport? Like, or do you just extend it indefinitely? You get like 50 years out of it? Or is there a cap? It's like, you can do this for like, you know, eight days and then you like miss out on X, Y, and Z. And it's now a stepwise function to get break out of the eight day barrier. I feel like this is the same conversation we had about AI and like, you know, and like how you get to general intelligence. Like, is it just a scaling problem? Like you just have to grow compute big enough and then you're there. Or is there like some other, you know, variable that we don't know about. And I feel like it's actually this very similar question. Yeah. Are there any examples where you don't run into the stepwise problem, actually? I feel like pretty much everything ends mm. up being stepwise. Well, there... Like speed of travel. You're is saying like, is anything just linear? You're saying is, is anything truly just linear? Yeah. Or is it just linear on a certain scale? And then... Yeah, if you, you zoom out enough, it? it looks linear. Right? Yeah. <laughs> The more you, as you zoom in, it gets more and more stepwise, right? That's probably the answer. That is probably the answer. That's a really good way to think about it, actually. Yeah. And then, yeah. So hibernation was one. And then escapism was the other thing that I was thinking was like super interesting as a, because in some ways it's like a variation of the, you know, Elon Musk, let's, we need to be on multiple planets, like that kind of thought process, which I think makes a lot of sense. But on the other hand, I could see if there was an imminent threat, how much of like a social breakdown that would cause. Totally. The imminent threat changes the whole thing because until then, it's like you actually probably wouldn't want to be one of the first people on a Mars colony or a space colony. No, existence it's, yeah, is it'd just be so fragile and limited. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I saw something funny about that at one point. It was sort of like anybody who's excited to go live on Mars to try living in Antarctica for a while first. Because you can at least breathe the air there, but yeah, <laughs> it's warmer, and you know we're not no no one's excited to go live in Antarctica right now, right? And Mars would be like a hundred yeah. times worse than that. Yeah, yeah. That I mean the whole nostalgia thing that I opened with, like this was just another one of those pieces where I was like, man, like all the way down. I first felt it when uh, they were playing the three body game mm-hmm. and the sunrise was irregular, and I was like, wow, like. I never even thought about the sunrise's regularity. And now, like, not now, I mean, not like every day, but there are like two days where I was like, ah, oh, this is, uh, this is here again, <laughs> like right on time. Uh, Man, I actually, ten like, in a row. We're on a streak. <laughs> but like I consciously thought his, about uh, it for a, His David Hume. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I consciously thought about it. This was another one of those where I was like, I, I it's, the loneliness and desolation of being in space. Yeah. We're like, so yeah. the space cities are really cool in the end too. Yeah. The, the way they described how the different design of the city gives you the feeling of a world. So you have like the wheel cities where you're basically in a capsule all the way around the wheel, or you get the cylinders where you actually have like a sense of a sky and some clouds. It, Well, it kind of goes back to the conversation we were having before we started recording of how hard you have to work in America to just like not get poisoned by your environment at a low level right now. Like all of the, you know, we've got a a really good air filter in our bedroom. We've got the whole house water filter and you've got to be meticulous where you buy your food. And, you know, just like all these things, like what products you put on and in your body, like all of that shit, right? (laughs) Now imagine that on a space station, right? Yeah, I mean, 
even just little things like I wonder what because we know that being inside all day and not getting much sunlight is not very good for you, right? Like it's it's pretty bad for you physically and psychologically. But you could be in a spaceship and get zero sunlight, yeah. right? For m- months and years, and like that might actually just like drive people insane, right? It, w- I wonder if the artificial lights could possibly make up for that. Can we make a good enough fake sun in a spaceship so that you don't like slowly go insane from not getting that special radiation? Did you guys understand what they were describing with the small suns inside the space cities? Like I read it was only, it was short. It was like a paragraph or two, but I didn't understand exactly what they were describing. It was like a small, like, some kind of small reaction was it like a nuclear like was it like a nuclear reactor of some sort yeah Uh, i don't but i can probably find it in a minute one sec yeah why while you're doing that one thing that we should also definitely talk about is the whole wall facer concept which i thought was just yeah like like, i don't know how the hell the author thought of everything this book like it's just there's so he basically took an idea and like just ran wild, like every sort of derivative thing that would happen from this one event happening and like got into all of it. I don't, I wouldn't even call this truly like a sci-fi book. Like it's sci-fi, but there's, I don't know. I feel like there's like sociology in it. Just like how people would react. There's like military strategy. There's just like so much, in, like it's just so many topics that he covers. Yeah. The sociology stuff felt very apt to me like when we were talking just now about the mars colony yep. like whether you're a hero or a villain it's like you're a hero until the earth is inhabitable and then you're immediately a villain because it's only a colony for the few yeah and the same thing with everyone else like there was when the galaxy and blue sky i think were the two spaceships when they were all going to be imprisoned for abandoning the rest of the fleet and then they imprisoned the first, I, I forget the names. It wasn't Galaxy, but I forget the names of the ships. Like the two ships that ran off. Uh, the first one came back. They captured everyone and imprisoned them. And by the time the second one came back, they were all heroes again. And they, they had done the same thing. And it was just, people were just so willing to flip on a whim and be like, yeah, it's, it's cool that you did the same crime as these other guys, like Mundicide. Yeah, it's just a perspective thing. But then the... Like the wall facer to me, it seemed like implausible. I think it's one of the parts of the story that I actually don't believe would happen. I think the Sofon free room would probably have come sooner in in like a real timeline. Like I think that's the thing we would probably have invested in first before giving four people autocratic powers over the entire world. (laughs) Uh, Because that was one of the weird contradictions throughout the story where... A lot at a lot of turns, they'd be like, "Oh, this is against like the values of humanity," but simultaneously, they'd be funding these four people. And they never really like resolved that paradox. Do you guys remember this? Which what part was against the interest of humanity? Because I I understood the wall facers were like the best worst option since That's the sofans could yeah, hear yeah. and see everything. Yeah. yeah. So you you had to the only way to hide something was to have it in one person's head. But they would also separately, I guess actually maybe that came like a hundred years later where there would be certain ideas where like, we don't do that anymore. Like that's a common era thing. 
Oh, do you remember what those were? Not off the top of my head. I mean, they were generally tied to some form of inequality or, uh, yeah, I, I, I can like thumb through this later so we can drop it in the notes, but there was a couple examples that, that kind of, that I know I was reading about. I, I thought on, on that note about the different eras, I thought the gender stuff was also very interesting. Like how people become like how, you know, men became more feminine or more you yeah. know, wa- warrior like depending on which era they were in. Right. And if it was like a softer fourth era. turning. Yeah, exactly. I got exact fourth turning vibes from that. Yeah. It's just like so interesting. So the the something is on page 427 of Death's End. Cool. It's very short. Cow explained that there were a total of three artificial suns in the space city, all of them floating along the central axis. These produced energy by nuclear fusion and brightened and dimmed on a 24-hour cycle. Well, that would solve the uh, not getting sunlight problem, theoretically. I... Probably could have Googled this, but I didn't. And now I'm here. So, uh, I mean, would that, su- would, like, how many, theoretically, do you have any idea of what qualities of sunlight that would actually emulate? Like, could you get vitamin D from? That's a good question. I don't know. A local I think reaction you, like that? I think your body can produce vitamin D in response to the right, uh, the right kind of, right kind of UV radiations. So, okay. Yeah. I think vitamin yeah. D, yeah, it's based on UV. Re- radiation penetrating the epidermis yeah could you get that from a uv light just like a lamp that's a good question Maybe. you probably could it's probably the amount might be an issue yeah but it'd probably be less because i don't mm. think you get sunburn from a uv light it's also you interesting know, it's- that uh vitamin d is produced through reaction of uv light and a uh, form of cholesterol it's essentially a reaction yeah. between cholesterol and sunlight oh, in your skin which is why even if you consume zero dietary cholesterol, your body still synthesizes cholesterol. <laughs> but yeah, I guess if you had those two ingredients, I don't see why you couldn't yeah. do that. Uh, it feels kind of like the Soylent of Sun. Like this thing Nat <laughs> was just saying, where it's like, would you go crazy? And okay, then you would still have you know, vitamin D production from UV light. You'd still have your circadian rhythm because the suns inside the space city are you know, on some axis of time, right? They're like dimming and brightening. Yeah. But it, it just, it feels like you've like boiled down, boiled it down to its like constituent parts and like removed whatever about it we couldn't identify. Do you ever feel uh, this paradox? Because I, I like literally the conversation we're having right now with about the sun and Soylent and all this stuff, like this paradox yeah. of, all the stuff we talked about in like the flying car episode and sci-fi and all this stuff of like, Oh, we can solve all these things with like technological progress. And then at the same time being like, but we probably can't like, it's it's like, I don't know. I feel like maybe, maybe there's no paradox here, but it does feel to me like there is a little bit of a, of a paradox where like, to your point about sunlight, it's like, yeah, what, like, to your point, have we boiled it down to its constituent parts? But then the question is, do we know all of the constituent parts? Can we replace all of those? Or are we just picking oh, like yeah. the big ones, you know? And then, and, th- and this is actually in that, that book the... I was reading right now, the the What Your Food yeah. Ate one. It's like, basically the chapter I'm on right now is conventional versus organic uh, farming. And it's like, actually on all the big variables, they're pretty similar, you know, like on the the major sort of nutrients, which is why like, you know, I think according to the USDA and stuff, there's not really a difference. 
But then the difference is actually in all like the micronutrients and like the phytochemicals, which are in trace amounts, which probably do aggregate up to a big effect. But yeah, but you don't like to your point about soy lent, like you wouldn't consider those to be like major components of the human diet, but they probably play an outsized role to their weight. Yeah, that was why I use soy lent as the example of like it's reductive to the point of not working anymore. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess like that is a that is a great question because I do think a lot of the yeah. space travel stuff, like long-term space travel stuff is probably downstream of figuring this out because if you let's say you do go crazy from lack of sunlight for, you know, 6 months, you know, or a year or whatever, like you couldn't do, you know, deep space travel then unless you had hibernation of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or the, like, you could live on Soylent. You just wouldn't live, like, well, you would have over the, yeah, exactly. So I, I would imagine there's some state like that you fall into. That you can survive, um, but you're not thriving, probably. Yeah. I mean, if we think, yeah. like, adapting to the Earth environment, you know, we were talking about, you have to, like, work really hard to just stay alive, you know, now yeah. it's like, can you imagine in space? <laughs> I, I, do, I did appreciate they had the details around this for, like, the children born on spaceships were like yeah. very tall you know because they had no gravity and like they were just <laughs> yeah <laughs> long and <laughs> crazy limbs and <laughs> oh man yeah there was a passage in death's end where they talk about like the fragility of being human i, I know i have it on one of my one of my tabs but i have about a thousand tabs <laughs> on the book right now yeah <laughs> i can't find it uh but yeah it's just the most like Every single system is essential to the func to func to your function in some way. Yeah. So even if that like micronutrient is only used for like one of those systems and we just haven't identified it yet, after a generation or two generations of depriving it, you would like probably really see what the impact is. Right. It's it's now we're like finding the link between everything in your gut and like cognitive function. It's probably yeah. something really unintuitive like that. And you would just have some form of impairment two generations down the line, 10 generations down the line in the space city. Yeah. Like to the point of those micronutrient conversation we were just having copper was a really interesting one where, you know, you can't eat like elemental copper. Like you can't just like eat a penny or something and, or, or like metal off the ground. Like it's just, your body can't absorb that, but you can absorb it through plants who kind of change the form of it. And then, and I think animals as well. Like I think copper is in liver, and some organ meats, but so you can absorb it through those other sort of forms, but you can't absorb it, wow. you know, just elementally. But if you don't have it, it really screws up your immune system. Like you basically have a dysfunction. If you just go a long time without eating copper and you've depleted all your stores, your immune system basically doesn't work. So to your point of like, you know, it's extremely trace. You probably don't need it every day. You don't need much of it overall, but without any of it for a long period of time, you're just fucked. And there's probably a lot of things like that. There's probably a lot of things. Say, mm. yeah. Iodine's another interesting one right now because mm. your your body needs iodine to function, like your brain especially. If you have iodine deficiency, it's almost like having low-grade dementia. And wow. a lot of people are iodine deficient now because we used to get iodine through, I think it was like organ meats and like some other foods that we just don't eat that much of anymore. And so we realized people were iodine deficient. So we put iodine in the salt, you know, iodized uh, table salt or whatever. But then everybody started switching to like sea salt 
and pink Himalayan sea salt and all this stuff, which doesn't have iodine in it. So they're like picking quote unquote healthier salt, but then they're losing the iodine supplement and not resupplementing with iodine elsewhere. And now they're getting iodine deficiencies. Wow. Oh, wow. So you have to find another it's actually way to in the, the name iodized salt. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you never think about it though. No, no, you don't think like, Oh, this is my iodine supplement. Like, but it was kind of yeah. It's sort of like yeah, when, it's- you know, putting fluoride in the drinking water. Yeah, we were, Nat, we were talking about like the fake uh, sunlight or whatever. And like, can we, and, and the dichotomy I was bringing up is like, if it's kind of similar to the Soylent discussion and yeah, yeah. Uh, nutrition where it's like, yeah, it's just like, I don't know. And, and then there's this dichotomy of the stuff we talked about in Flying Car with we can solve all problems with technological progress. And then this like, also this feeling that like, we probably don't know enough to do that. And I don't know, I always feel like that, that this dichotomy whenever we, I read like sci-fi and things like this, where it's just like, okay, yeah, have we, can you solve sunlight and figure out an artificial replacement? In theory, yes, if you break down all the components of it and just replicate it. But at the same time, you know, not, uh, not Nat, a deal's point about Soylent, this, you know, you could probably create the Soylent version of sunlight. Right. Isn't really like you, it can keep you alive, but it's not gonna, you're certainly not gonna thrive. So, it's yeah. it's just such a titration problem because I wouldn't like I wouldn't want to go back in time thirty thousand years right. and do that. Right, I think that gets a little bit fetishized in you know bro science land. It's like oh, like we used to live naturally. It's like yeah, but anything could kill you. I, I really like modern. I would medicine. like antibiotics, please. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then the other extreme is the the space city. Yeah. Well, it kind of goes back to the like drinking water in India thing that we talked about at the beginning, right? Like, I would certainly rather have dirty drinking water than no drinking water. Yeah, so mm, that's for sure true. <laughs> if, yeah. if the choice if the choice is between getting exterminated on Earth or having to adapt to an artificial sun, like I'll definitely take the latter. Yeah, but for sure. You also like ideally you want the pure version, right? It's kind of like what people say about a lot of agriculture is yeah you don't want to starve to death exactly yeah (laughs) you really can't sustain the number of humans that are on the planet right now without some sort of massive agricultural like machine uh but that also means that like most people are probably not going to eat the quality of food that like their body really wants and needs but that's also probably better than starving to death yeah they're probably better off being alive than not alive yeah because they couldn't there wasn't enough food well, some um, people disagree with that. Yeah. Some people, you know, you got all these yeah. Gen Zers who think we should just let a lot of people die off because they think the planet's melting. <laughs> Different episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although it is kind of related, right? Of that like, was, it is kind of related. Yeah, that was in the like, first book. Yeah. 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 That was in the first book. Oh, the, uh, yeah. You're totally the right. Yeah. yeah the people who were like, no, we should just let them invade and take the earth because we don't deserve it. No, and it. the thing that was so interesting about well, that is a lot of those That's how it people, all started. A lot yeah. of those ETO people were uh, elites as well. That was like the other yeah. thing that was so interesting. And they were like, oh, we're, mm. we've evolved beyond like human-centric thinking and like the Tristellarians are just so much better. I'm telling you, rich white liberal arts majors at Brown, they'd be all over this. <laughs> <laughs> They would be the ETO. They would be the ETO. <laughs> it was interesting to see this set in China and to see the mirrors of like if this was set in America, I'd be like, okay, I have a sense of like who is in the ETO and who's not in the ETO and so on. But I had no such sense for like mapping this to like 60s China. 
Mm, right. So I think it was, who was it? Yeah, Ye Wenji, mm-hmm. who actually sent the message. Who was like, yeah, like, here are our coordinates, like, please come. Yep. Uh, which was oh, not, I, who uh, I, not who I would have expected. I was reading uh, Luchikson's Wikipedia uh, article, and it's kind of interesting. A little bit of the first book inspiration. So he was born in 1963, uh, and he was raised in like a small town where his parents had been sent to work in the mines. Oh, wow. And then due to cultural revolution violence, he was sent to live in his ancestral home in a different part of China. And then when he graduated from, or and then he graduated from the North China University of Water Conservancy and Electrical Power, and then worked as a computer engineer at a power plant. So like a lot of that, because uh, mm. the let's see, she's she's working at like a weather station, right? Uh, yeah, radar station, radar, yeah, station. radar station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's kind of interesting, right? It's like a lot of that groundwork was based on his own backstory in the Cultural Revolution, like pretty tight overlap there. Yeah. The uh, speaking about it being a, a Chinese book too is like the translation was. Fin- Amazing. I mean, I, again, I don't know what the original said, to be honest, obviously, but the it was such a well done. Like one of my worries with this book, knowing that knew like I knew it was a Chinese book before Nat, you like when you first told me about it before we decided to do it. And I was worried that like there would be cultural things I didn't understand or like names would get confusing. And like the names, okay, they like sometimes were getting a little bit confusing, but they also weren't that many characters. Like for the yeah. size of yeah. book that this was, there it was a very manageable number of characters. So I didn't feel myself getting lost with that. But whoever did the translation did a phenomenal job of it, making it read really, really well. So something else interesting in the Wikipedia article is that Lou wrote The Three-Body Problem in 2007. But then Ken Lou didn't do the English translation until 2014. And... I guess he changed some stuff in the English translation. Like they updated the book some, or they like adapted some stuff because Mm. the translated version is the one that won all the awards, not the original. Oh, wow. Uh, Is that just because the awards are American favorite English books? I don't, I don't think so. Uh, because the, let's see. No, I guess it it was all the English translations that won the awards, but I think, yeah, maybe you're right, but it, it, it specifically calls out that the German translation included some portions of the original text not included in the English translation. Oh. So there's some stuff in the original that didn't make it into the translation. So I wonder what changed between the two. Uh but Ken, I don't need more of this series. I know. <laughs> but the, the translator, Ken Liu, is also a famous sci-fi author. So he's not just a translator. And I feel like that's part of what made it huh. so good, too. I like, didn't know he was sci-fi. I just heard of him for the uh, paper managerie. Um, I think maybe I'm wrong. No, I'm pretty sure I'm right. Um, I'm not contesting. I just had no idea. No, I, I, I could be wrong. Yeah, no, he's an American author of science fiction and fantasy. There's like a big section of him at Book People in Austin. Wow. And he's won a bunch of like Hugo and Nebula awards too. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Ken Liu's kind of a 
badass. He's gotten three Hugo <laughs> Awards, a, a Nebula Award, three Locus Awards. I don't know these other ones. Fant Lab, Sidewise. The dude's won a lot of awards. Oh, he wrote some of the Star Wars books. We should read some more Ken Lin. Wow. On that note, I could not tell the difference between the translations because oh. the Dark Forest is Joel Martinson. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. They did a, a really either. good job of very consistent like tone and overall vibe. Yeah, I wonder why Ken Liu didn't do Dark Forest. One thing that was like. Just again, every I'm just looking at my notes. There's just so many things where it's like I can't believe they were able to tie this in to this book. The whole thing about dark matter. Do you guys remember this? I, I'll just read it. Uh, I can read yeah, it from the yeah. book as a reminder. But yeah, this is so. This is from the book. These characters are talking to each other. There's only one way to detect the presence of the two dimensional solar system from three dimensional space: gravity. The gravity of the solar system still has an effect, so in that empty space ought to be detectable detectable as an invisible source of gravity. Sounds like dark matter, doesn't it? Like, wild. I mean, Nat, we've talked about dark matter on the show before yeah. as being like something we just probably don't understand. And I'm not saying this is like the answer to that, but it was just so clever to work that into this. It is interesting, like, the limits of what you can... Like if you're keeping it a like a hard SF novel, which I think this pretty much is, and then dealing with these amounts of time, right? It's really hard to imagine like all of this technology without trying to figure out like what other you know fundamental changes in our perception of reality will come with them, right? It's like because we didn't know about relativity. 100 years ago right right and it's pretty much impossible to imagine our current space era without some understanding of relativity and so will there be like will there be other fundamental changes to how we understand the universe in the next 100 years undoubtedly that, yeah yeah that and and they how will they change our perception of like so many of these novels right like there could be something in typical sci-fi tropes where we're just like oh that that is ridiculous now. <laughs> it makes no sense, right? Or the op- or the opposite. Like, um, remember in Flying Car, like how something that he was saying was a lot of the future inventions kind of can come from, like people speculate on them first. But that's definitely like a survivorship bias. Like for every right one, there's probably like 20 wrong ones. Maybe right. more than that. Mm. Um, but there might be like some of these books that are, you know, you're just like, wow, that was like Permutation City. Like did, I could totally see the whole digital immortality thing being something that happens. Yeah. Just based on the direction of AI and where a lot of, you know, interest is and like people want to live forever in general. Totally. So, um, but it's like, yeah, not just because it's in sci-fi doesn't mean it like can't happen, I guess, is where I was going with that. (laughs) Well, I I was sort of saying like the the challenge is that they can imagine all those cool inventions, but they can't imagine something like relativity. Yes, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because right. it's a whole paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. Like it's a whole paradigm shift. Yeah. And if you put something like like imagine if you wrote a sci-fi novel, imagine like H. G. Wells writing the time machine, and then he like made up something in the realm of relativity in that novel, people would just be like, This is stupid, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like there's no way clocks move at different speeds when they're in space as you know on Earth or whatever, right? Like the the I think it would just get rejected. Right. So the 
the proposing new paradigms is way harder than proposing the derivative technologies of the existing paradigm. Yeah. And so I wonder that makes simply sense. So that, that part is kind of fun to speculate on, but I feel like you also really couldn't do it in a sci-fi novel. It, it I wonder to like sell. to even dis- forget sci-fi and writing fiction to even propose seriously an idea like relativity what the conversation in your own mind must be like, because it must be borderline feeling like, am I insane? Yeah. Like this is so fundamental and I'm, I'm going to like put my reputation and everything on the line. Well, I actually know very little about Einstein because he's such a meme, but I, I wonder if there's any good biographies. Walter like, Isaacson. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. That was, that, do you remember that? Do you remember that line in Steve Jobs? Like, I think it's in the beginning of the Jobs biography where Jobs yeah. reaches out to Isaacson and asks and asks him to do the biography, and he says something to the effect of like, "Well, you talked about uh, Ben Franklin and Einstein, so obviously you should talk about me too." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't remember that. That's amazing. It's a hilarious line. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, I gotta, re- I gotta read this. Yeah, um, I have it. Well, I was gonna say, on on, shelf, but I haven't read it yet. The I'm gonna say one. on that note, like. I think I'm remembering this right. Like one of the crazy things with Einstein was that he was basically just a clerk in yeah. a Swiss patent, patent office, office when he was figuring this stuff out. You know, he wasn't really in academia or super established as like a thought leader in the field. And so it would literally be like somebody today who's working as like, you know, a bank teller or something getting on Twitter and being like, hey, guys, everything we think we know about physics is wrong. Like, here's why, you know, I think that I think it was a little more dignified of a process than that, but it's pretty crazy to imagine. I do think from some of the things we've read, like structure of scientific revolutions and uh, even flying car, that's probably where it's likely to come from. Yeah. It's unlikely to come from traditional academia because of all the like political pressures that they would have. Not, not politics isn't like a right left politics, but just like, you know, how would you get funding for your thing if you're totally. working on something that's out of the, the existing paradigm? Well, it's like Newton. He was mostly doing divinity school and trying to turn right. metals into gold and right. then like figured out calculus on the side. This was fun. on the side. It was a side hustle. It was a side hustle. For <laughs> yeah. It was his. Well, we Guys, if we weren't doing the podcast, hustle. we could be solving some real problems here. Think about what we could be doing with our lives. <laughs> I actually... Uh, I, I think about this this tweet that I saw kind of often because it makes me kind of sad because I think it's very true where it's like every time you see like a guy on YouTube who's incredibly obsessed with the world of like a video game and like doing crazy exploration and finding every single little thing. Have I already told the story on the podcast? Like, okay, a, a deal's making a face, but. Uh, you know, oh, no, I was just like, oh, like I. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like that's yeah. somebody who would have been running around the outskirts of his town, finding every single kind of beetle and cataloging them and would have discovered something incredible about like insects. Right. And yeah. we've kind of like lost a little bit of that real world curiosity and replaced it with digital world curiosity. Uh, yeah. Which I, I feel like is what people say about, you know, it's like the Peter Thiel 140 characters instead of flying cars thing. And I saw, I saw a good take a week or two ago that was basically like, if if GPT does get good enough at programming, like a lot of app-based businesses will become obsolete because it'll be so trivial to just like spin up your own 
Zoom or something. Commoditized. They'll be commoditized. And yeah. so it won't be as good of a business to go into anymore. So people will return to doing physical world businesses instead. And I was like, that's kind of interesting wow. idea. Interesting like it, it'd be much harder to compete in a physical world business than a digital business. Uh, yeah. Or people yeah. will just build tons of protocols and then the apps on top of them will come for free from GPT. Exactly. Interesting. It's or the G- <laughs> let's not like go down it. the protocol route. The other thought I had was uh, <laughs> uh, something, I don't think we've talked about this, but there is a sense of we've just like figured the world out. Yeah. And I think it's it's so false and misleading. It's like we've barely figured anything out. Like we don't even know like what's going on in the bottom of the ocean, right? Like it's like a new planet and it's like right here. Dude, we're like uh, three-year-olds who think we've like figured it all out. Like we know how it works, yeah. you know, but Sophomores. we don't know anything. Yeah. Yeah. There is like a very high barrier to that as opposed to a video game. But I do think that illusion is not because of the barrier. Like I think it's because a lot of folks really think it's like, yeah, we've like, there's nothing left to discover here. Well, it's like all those old maps that Europeans drew of the world before the before you know Columbus and Magellan and all of them found the Americas, right? They had a incredibly detailed map of Europe, Asia, Africa, and they're like, "Here is the world," right? <laughs> and they were pretty confident about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just don't go too far that way. Yeah, uh, okay. something weird over there. I'm not really sure. Yeah. <laughs> you might fall off. <laughs> yeah, Atlantis. Um, no, some Vikings thing, went missing. What one thing we should definitely talk about is the dark forest theory. Like, oh yeah, we got to talk about that because I thought that was so interesting. Um, I know we've talked about Fermi paradox on the show before, and uh, you know, for I mean, I think most people listening are probably familiar, but if you're not, it's basically. You know, if you think about the fact the universe is infinite and there's infinite worlds out there, you would think there are infinite civilizations. And Enrico Fermi, when this was being talked about once, I think it was at Los Alamos, right? Or is, it was at one of the, I want to say it was like during the Manhattan Project or af, right after or something. But it was, it, anyway, it was Enrico Fermi, which is why it's named after him. He turned to his colleague when they're talking about this and said, well, then where are they? Right? Like if there's infinite civilizations out there why don't we see any and i think this book is actually a very interesting thought experiment on why you don't see any (laughs) and the thought experiment is it's a dark forest because you don't know you don't want to be hunted by a civilization that's more advanced than you so it's in your interest to basically pretend that you don't exist and hide your existence from everyone else and humanity being humanity decides let's go broadcast that we're out here which is actually what we do with SETI, right? And yeah. and, uh, and like some of the probes and stuff. And like, we just like, we're so friendly, I guess it's on some level that we just, or we just need to be seen. We're so like egotistical. It's just like, we need people to know we're here. And then th- that kind of leads to all of this essentially is like by the Trisolarians discovering humans, you know, it leads to this. And then that kind of plays a role throughout the book. Oh, one the thing the story. book pointed out though, on that on, on, on that topic, Neil, that I hadn't thought about before is that merely sending out radio waves or whatever does not give away your position. Yes. That, that I thought was really interesting that like we could be broadcasting, you know, from SETI and whatnot, trying to find somebody to communicate with us, but it doesn't tell them where we are because you can't like locate the source in space. Uh, you'd have to be broadcasting your coordinates, which right. I don't think we do. Um, I, I'd hope not. <laughs> yeah, I certainly hope not. Uh, After reading this book, yeah. <laughs> yep. 
Uh, yeah, and basically it creates a game theory, essentially, right? Of like this dark forest thing of like, okay, if you know other civilizations exist and, you know, you're trying to hide your existence because you're worried about them destroying you, you actually should proactively, potentially, you you know, you might make this decision as a society, as a civilization that it's in your interest to go destroy the other civilizations if you find them because they might destroy you first. So, Yeah. yeah, it creates this weird like game theory, like, situation where it's in your you know people are oh, it's not people but civilizations are essentially some are hunting and destroying other civilizations before they get hunted and destroyed well and going back to the idea of trying to imagine how completely different species would have you know what their psychology and their value system and all of those things would be even if you were a very pacifist species you would have to assume that not all others are and so even if you are even if you really, really don't want to just destroy every civilization you discover, like you still kind of have to for your own self-interest. Yeah, I mean, when Luoji at the end of, or whenever in the second book, when he destroys that star, just yeah. just to see if he can do it, like just yeah. to try the spell, to see if it works. <laughs> but, yeah, like it was so nonchalant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although they didn't know that there was, uh, I did appreciate because right? he, he just picked a random one, right? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. yeah. But they didn't know there they was life there, there, but I guess they didn't yeah. know there wasn't too. Yeah. Well, then they end up suspecting him of uh, what's the word mundicide? Oh yeah, destroying a yeah. whole civilization or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then his wife leaves him because she's like, "Yeah, you've already destroyed one star and maybe a civilization, and now two more are in your hands." Yeah. No pressure. It reminded me of the there. I forgot where I read this, and there's a name for it. But the idea that like the democracy in the United States completely changed once the president was given the nuclear codes, and mm-hmm. with the ability to like, with one person's command, launch the launch nukes and like basically you know, end the world. Because uh, now you've completely upended the dynamic of power. It's like mm-hmm. you have all these other things that are semi formalities, but then you have one guy who can just launch everything at once and we already have that I mean, we don't even have like an interstellar threat that's just like yeah. local threats right i do remember that there was some stuff when trump was getting elected because you know there were people who were like i oh, we can't give him the nuclear codes uh, like he's insane whatever there was some like murmurings from the military that they wouldn't necessarily listen to the president if that order mm. came down, do you remember this? I feel like you would have heard more about it than me, Adil. There, there were like, I don't remember who it was. It was some, you know, one of the. No, like, I, I know what you're talking about, Nat. I've definitely seen something similar. It was. I don't think anybody really, really, like really... explicitly said, "Oh no, I wouldn't do it." But it was like it was it, more vague than you would expect a military <laughs> person to be. I don't like, think it was oh, Mathis. But it was somebody order. like that who said yeah. something to the effect of like, "Well, we have." our own like checks and balances within the military right. too, to make sure that, you know, these things don't happen. And it was kind of like a, like what? <laughs> I mean, good, but also like, that's interesting, right? It wasn't what I think most people expected to hear. It's actually kind of a miracle. If you think about it, that democracy has actually uh, survived in the U S that it's not a military run country because 
in every other country when things get like and maybe we just haven't hit that point yet but like in every other mm. like on paper democratically elected country when things get like rough the military just is like well democracy was cool for a bit but like, we're <laughs> actually the ones in charge hope you had fun kids like <laughs> yeah like i feel like this happens like you know in so many countries uh they'll be like democratic for a while then the military is like all right this has gone too far we're well, back. you know why it doesn't happen here why we all have guns because they can't that's do actually it. a good that's actually a good point too that it's not a monopoly on guns the way it is yeah in a lot of other i'm countries. only half joking i do actually think that plays a decent role right no, I think you're I think you're actually right. It's like it's like I that argument of, oh, like you can't fight off the military like, uh, you know, the American <laughs> says, which is that's absolutely true. But on an individual. I, no, no, no. The American basis, civils, the American citizens could absolutely fight off the military. Are you kidding? <laughs> like, you see well, how okay, take, like, <laughs> no, I see, what I see where you're going with it. But like, just take yeah. that on face value for a second. It's like, yeah. I, I don't see where he's going with it. Okay, we'll let him go. Let him go there in a second. I'll just wrap up my thing, which was just that. Just that, like, on an individual soldier basis, you still have the risk of getting shot. Or a yeah. police officer basis, you still mm-hmm. have the risk of being shot. And you're like, is this worth my own life? And, like, yeah. you know, and then so you just have that doubt that gets created. So, not to your point, like, even the commanders or the generals might be like, I don't even know if people would obey if we wanted to march through, like, New York City because, like, it's not worth it. It um, reminds me of the, like, I think it was during Obama's presidency where there was like the, the national guard deployed in Texas cause they were trying to build like a fence. I forget all the details of this and I'll Google it. So I don't tell the wrong thing, but with that caveat, the details I do remember is like there was a guy who owned a piece of land, which would have been like on the other side of the border fence and, or they wanted the border fence, like go through his property. And so they were like trying to do like eminent domain and all this stuff. And he was just refusing to move. So they deployed the national guard, which is sort of like the domestic military anyway. Right. We just, just under a different name yeah, guard. And he was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he just like, was like, yeah, well I have guns. This is Texas. And there was like a little standoff. And in the end they're like, all right, we'll like build a fence around it. Cause it raised the cost yeah. of that confrontation, which was enough to avoid the confrontation. Oh, was that like the Bundy ranch or something like that? I think I know what you're well, talking about. I Let me Google that. it just to really confirm I'm not doing any fake news here. We can add it. Yeah, I, va- I definitely remember this too. And it was like a standoff. Nothing ended up happening. Uh, yeah. Like there's not actually a shootout or anything. Wait, Nat, where were you going with it? Just for oh, a benefit. I, I mean, my point was just that given the challenges of making progress in the various like Middle Eastern efforts over the last 20 years, I have a hard mm-hmm. time believing that Texas would be easier to invade and take control of right way harder yeah way harder <laughs> absolutely so i i that's, think that- uh that's why there's that i forget i think it was chris rock or somebody had this like a, a little segment about how like it was shocking that the u.s was able able to take over baghdad in two weeks and he was like you couldn't you know take over hood over a neighborhood of baltimore in two weeks like, it just <laughs> yeah exactly it was a similar thing in like uh, sovereign individual, right? Where he makes he presents one counter argument, which is like, well, if the U.S. government or any government decided to, he's talking about the U.S. though, like decided to take everyone's wealth away, they would just lock down the borders and nobody would be able to get out. He was like, the number of people with no resources who sneak into the country every day, like you really don't think that if you have yeah. resources, you could sneak out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's such a good point. <laughs> yeah. 
Neil, I know you got to go. Do we have yeah, any last things up, you want to bring up before we wrap? Before we wrap, which one was your which one was your favorite of the three books? The second one. Yeah, I guess in terms of, I mean, I, I really loved the politics angle of the second one. I, I thought that was the most interesting, like full book story arc. But I love the imagination of the third book the most. Hmm. There's just so many crazy things, right? Like all the stuff with the droplets and then when they're just like flying through time and uh, the mysterious civilizations just blowing up solar systems at random. It's just so creative. That yeah. I thought that was really fun. How about you, Adil? I, every time I think about it, I have a different answer. I think the first one gripped me the most. Like I literally couldn't put the first one down but it was the least impressive once I finished it. Hmm. Like once you finished all of them or once you finished just the first one? Once I finished all three, I, that's yeah. the one I was least impressed by. But as I was flipping the pages, I literally just couldn't put it down. I was like, what happens? What but happens? That's a good point. If it were a standalone yeah. book and just ended on a cliffhanger, it would be an incredibly yeah. impressive work of science fiction. But then when you yeah. f- bring in the scale of the second and third books, it feels very small by comparison. Yeah, it becomes a story about people. Neil, wh- why the second book for you? I think the the sociology and the political angle was just so interesting tied with the like background of what was happening. Like in the first one, to your point, it felt more like a thriller. And I really enjoyed it and I couldn't put it down as well. But I I like even as I was reading it, I and I and I loved it already, but I wasn't like this is like the best series I've ever read at that point. Right. Yeah. It was like, it was, it was really entertaining, really interesting. And then when it was, when I got into the second one that I'm like, wow, he's really thought through the implications of this. And it just like the depth of how much he thought about it just hit me. And I enjoyed that the most. I think the third was also really good. Like I would go second, third, first as my ranking. And because the third was also very good. Uh, it was it was just not it was like slightly not as good as the second one in my in in like my opinion and it, it's not the first mm-hmm. one was bad I'm not discouraging anyone from reading the first one you need <laughs> it it's just that it was like when you get to the other two then you're just like wow yeah. that was that was actually not on the same level it's like an exceptionally good book that is followed by books so much better than it that you can <laughs> almost be dismissive of it yeah. even yeah. though at the time of its reading it's like so good yeah i i have a different colored tab on my highlights for when i flipped from this is a really good book to holy fuck (laughs) good book and it's uh page 305 in the dark forest Uh, i'll just read like three lines from three different paragraphs which i had highlighted which is he entered hibernation and planned to wake at the doomsday battle his sole desire was to be able to see with his own eyes the superior technology of Trisolaris. In the century following the start of the crisis, everyone who had lived through the Golden Age passed away. It was an era that was constantly recalled, and the old folks who had lived through those grand times chewed over their memories of it like ruminants, savoring the flavors. They always closed with one line, if only we knew how to cherish things back then. As the elderly passed away, the departed golden shore vanished into the smoke of history. The ship of human civilization floated alone in the vast ocean, surrounded on all sides by endless, sinister waves, and no one even knew 
if there was an opposite shore. So good. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should end there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we are doing the courage to be disliked next, I think. Yep. Next uh, week. Next week. And oh, and thank you to everyone who keeps leaving reviews. I think we're like we at like two more people added on Spotify. Nice. And our rating is slowly creeping up um, there. And I think we got a couple more on Apple as well. So whichever one you listen on, if you listen on Spotify, it's super quick, but you have to listen there to be able to leave a review. They block you otherwise. Um, But if you're listening anywhere else, you should leave a review on iTunes. Cool. And we'll see everyone next week or at some point. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, three body problem. Definitely go read it. And then the series is coming out. Uh, Netflix should give us a little sponsorship for doing this episode. Yeah, that'd be nice. (laughs) They got some money. Yeah, they got some money. money. (laughs) Or just give us a a video podcast deal or something. Maybe they can get into podcasts. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) We'll lead their podcast strategy. Business for them to get into. Yeah. For yeah. Just give us a Rogan deal. We'll be good. Yeah, that'd be fine. (laughs) (laughs) We'll settle for ninety nine million. It It doesn't have to be a hundred. Yeah, we'll split it three ways. It doesn't have to be each hundred million. Yeah, we're good. All right. But yes, Alrighty. keep leaving reviews. Uh, let us know what you think and definitely go read this book. See you guys next time. See ya. See y'all.